Thanks for listening to Pod of Jake. I'm Jake. You can reach me anytime by emailing jake at blogofjake.com. I'm fortunate to have some sponsors supporting the show whose products I genuinely love and recommend. I'll start with a word on those so the rest of the episode will have no interruptions. I hope you enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Levels. Levels uses continuous glucose monitoring to track your blood sugar in real time. It allows me to see the impact that everything I do has on my metabolic health so that I can optimize my diet and exercise accordingly. Wearing the Levels patch, I feel like I'm living in the future. There's this moment when you raise your phone to the back of your arm, it vibrates and shows your glucose level right on the screen. It's this instantaneous look inside yourself, an in-the-moment snapshot of what's going on inside your body. And while it's only showing one simple measurement for now, it's enough for me to see the future. And that's exciting. It's exciting because I believe that we can live meaningfully longer and healthier lives than we do today. And I believe technologies like Levels will help us to get there. Levels is currently running an exclusive beta program with a wait list of over 100,000 people, but you can skip the line and join Levels today by using my link in the show notes, levels.link slash jake. Again, that's levels.link slash jake. This episode is brought to you by Aura. That's O-U-R-A. The Aura ring, from my perspective, is the single best wearable on the market. I use it to measure my sleep, activity, and readiness on a daily basis. I bought my Aura ring several months ago before talking with the company's CEO on the podcast. I haven't taken it off since. I believe what gets measured gets managed. So if you care at all about your health, which you should, you have to measure your sleep in order to manage it. Aura measures much more than just my time in bed. It tracks my REM sleep versus deep sleep, my resting heart rate and heart rate variability, my temperature, my activity, and much, much more. For $299, you can get your own Aura Ring on AuraRing.com. That's O-U-R-A-R-I-N-G.com. AuraRing.com. Okay, let's get into it. Thank you, Cooper, for coming on and joining me on the podcast today. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, I usually introduce people with like a title or two, but uh, I think anything I tried to do in that department would be doing you a disservice, wouldn't be doing you justice. You're involved in like dozens of different projects, mostly if not all within the crypto space. You're writing, you're investing, contributing to DAOs, advising projects, all the above. Uh, and we'll probably only touch the surface on a few of those things, but uh, you know, we've got some time and, and I'm looking forward to talking about whatever we can get to. Uh, but I think before we really dig into it, best place to start would just be your story uh, from as early as you're willing to sort of start to where you are today and, and some of the decisions you made along the way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first and foremost, thank you for having me. I've been a big fan of the podcast for a while, so I'm really excited to dive in. For those of you who don't know me, hey, my name's Cooper. I'm an operating investor in the creator economy. So I've been working in crypto for about five years, but I've been in music and creative work for almost 10 years. And to go back to really the beginning, I would say that my professional career started on eBay. You know, I was buying and selling Pokemon cards with friends, basically finding wholesale lots on the internet, breaking them down into their parts and then selling them for their individual components. So think about buying someone's childhood collection, you know, finding that rare Charizard and then finding a way to get that to somebody else. That sort of evolved into a love for music. And so in college, I was doing a lot of curation for a blog called This Song is Sick, basically finding artists very early in their career and giving them a spotlight. Over time, I realized that music was a clear passion of mine. You know, I was going to concerts every day. I was writing about different artists and music that I was finding. You know, I was dabbling in artist promotion and events management, but um, unfortunately it wasn't a very lucrative career. 
you know, it was something that I was very passionate about, but it wasn't doing well financially. And so as I started to graduate college, I discovered something called crypto. This was in 2017 during the whole ICO era. And I basically spent all of my time curating in a way the new tokens that were launching every single day. I was reading white papers. I was working with teams on advising them on their strategy and really just trying to make sense of what was happening in sort of this new Web3 era. You know, I think as many of us know, that was not a very uh, long time that the ICO era lasted. And when everyone started to leave in 2018, I really started to double down. What this looked like was me starting to research DeFi. You know, I took that journalism lens that I had started to develop with music and turned that into a love for writing about all things happening at DeFi summer. I was doing a lot of yield farming and doing a lot of on-chain governance, working for teams with project updates and anything I could to really just help add legitimacy to the space. You know, and after a big period of time there, I kind of woke up and realized that finance wasn't the core thing that I love. And so instead I started focusing more on the creative lens. You know, going back to my love for music, I was starting to work with a lot more creators. You know, I helped a lot of projects get set up with their tokens, started a DAO called Friends with Benefits with some friends, and really just started to experiment with what does it look like to invest in culture? You know, and at that point in time, I was able to have a, a nice track record just working with teams on token launches. And so I would work with teams like ENS, Gitcoin, SuperAir, Audius, you know, the list goes on and on and basically helping to get tokens into the world through airdrops. Nowadays, I basically spend my time more in the NFT side of things and more specific on the music vertical, teaching creators how to use Web3. That's everything from me being a collector of their work to being a project manager to build them a Web3 solution and just working with platforms and founders on actually building the best solutions for them to do so. And so these days, I kind of sit at the intersection of culture and crypto. I'm really, really excited about the music side of things. And to your point, it's difficult for me to have uh, one hat on. But if I had to categorize it, I would say angel investor, project manager, collector, and all overall enthusiast for the future of Web3. Awesome. Well, that's a great background. Uh, I have to say, before we, we get too deep into things, you're, you're just a really good talker. Like, uh, I don't know. I don't really say that often with people on the podcast. I don't know if I've ever said that, but uh, and maybe maybe you're not the best of the hundred or whatever, but you're definitely up there. Like, I just like you really communicate very well. And I just want to say that up front. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to a good podcast today. I, I wish I could talk as clearly as you do. But uh, anyways, it's a great story. Um, I want to go back to you know, when you first sort of started discovering crypto, I think you were in college in Colorado at the time, uh, Ethereum came onto your radar. And I think you realized, I, I think you're sort of, obviously now you're focused on the intersection of music and uh, and crypto among sort of more broadly community and things like that, but music and music NFTs in particular. And that's not like a new thing that you sort of stumbled upon, like, oh, music seems like a cool vertical. That was actually, as far as I understand, like the initial entry point to your intro in uh in crypto you, you basically saw ethereum and you're like this could help to revolutionize the industry can you talk a little bit about like your very first sort of encounters with crypto and sort of putting that together in your head and and getting excited about that back in the early days like 2017 yeah absolutely and i'm really glad you called this out i had a class in college called the future of music this was in my senior year of college and one of my professors was excited about the idea of crypto he basically brought up the notion of smart contracts and to the class communicated, this is the technology that makes royalty payments exponentially easier. You know, for those who aren't familiar, if I stream a track on Spotify today, that artist typically isn't seeing a payout for three to six months. With smart contracts, he articulated a system where I play your track, the amount of money that I'm paying for playing that track gets sent to you in real time. And that instantly clicked with me. You know, I didn't have to think too deeply about the application of the technology. It just was intuitive. It wasn't extrapolating it to like change the world or anything like that you know, just mechanically made sense. And so from there, I started diving into, you know, the Ethereum white paper and thinking about these applications more practically. And I really loved this combination of like, 
do your own research, you know, carve your own path out, find something that makes sense for you. But also there's practical use cases here that are going to be developed over time. So obviously everyone loves to trade tokens. You know, we see that now with NFTs and whatnot. But for me, I think that my career in crypto is grounded from a fundamental principle of how does this technology, you know, better adapt and evolve industries that I'm passionate about. And to your point, you know, coming from a music background and now being able to do what I'm doing today with music NFTs, it's been a really amazing opportunity for me to combine something that at one point was only a passion to now feeling like it's a real movement that I can have a meaningful change with. Yeah. And obviously there was some sort of gap between there, like music NFTs are just now starting to gain some traction over the last couple of years. I guess you could argue the seeds were sort of planted. Some of the projects, you know, most of the projects probably you've been working with directly, um, you know, Audius among them and, and several others. But, uh, you know, in the few years that transpired between when you first got into crypto, partly for that reason, and, and where we are now, where music's becoming a thing, uh, or crypto and, and music is becoming a thing, um, you were doing some other stuff, you know, you're, you're in DeFi and, and writing a lot about sort of non-music related uh, aspects of crypto. Uh, and you're consulting those projects like as early as I think you said 2017, 2018 on their, you know, token like ICOs and things like that. Um, I'm curious, like, you know, you just sort of discovered the thing in 2017, you're learning about it in real time. How did you like go about those first few projects where you're actually in like a consultant role? And like, how did you sort of get over what someone could easily foresee, like some imposter syndrome there? Like, right, like you just learned about this thing like a year ago. Now you're going and trying to teach people how to do it. How did you sort of like navigate those waters early on? It's a great question. I would say largely having context on the way that the market was evolving was my main value add. So for a lot of these founders that were coming into the space in 2017, they were flying blind. You know, everyone saw ICO as a way to do capital formation. But at that point in time, there was a very clear culture emerging around how to do an ICO. You know, this was everything from the right sites to be on, to the way to communicate your project, to the way that a token distribution was handled. And although I was young, you know, I was reading five to 10 white papers every single week. I was looking at the styles that were being used. I was looking at the format of the papers themselves. And I was just in the trenches as a community member. And so when I came to these founders, mind you, I was fresh out of college with a music business degree. So something that had absolutely nothing to do with crypto. And I said to them, hey, like, if you want to get involved in the space, you know, I might not be a seasoned expert, but I am following this stuff every single day. And I can tell you about the best places that we need to be paying attention to. And so as a community member, I think a lot of founders were excited to just have me on board. You know, at that point in time, I was basically coming on for any amount of money that someone could pay me. I knew that it wasn't going to be the most lucrative thing in the world, but it was exciting to me. And I got to operate from the standpoint of being you know, more or less a freelance contributor. And I think to people listening, you know, the more that you learn about me and my career, I've always sort of bounced around from different projects, but I've centered myself in having, you know, a really good context and mindset about the current state of the market. You know, whether that was ICOs, DeFi, DAOs, and now NFTs, you know, there's kind of always something that's core to the evolution of Web3 as a whole. And a lot of my job is really not only understanding what that is from a narrative standpoint, but very mechanically getting to know who the key players are and why they're working in the way that they are. Right. Yeah. And it's admirable, like the long-term view that I'm sure you took back in those days, realizing like none of these individual gigs are going to necessarily be lucrative, but in the long term, just sort of having that belief in yourself, like I keep contributing here and there, eventually things are going to come together. And they certainly have over the last several years. Um, in addition to, you know, you mentioned like just sort of digging deep on reading white papers, five to 10 a week, whatever it is, um, just immersing yourself in the space and, and getting all that context so that you can be an asset for all these different projects. Um, I think on the other side of that, your actual wedge in a lot of cases, if not most of them was sort of writing. Uh, so you'd take everything that you read and, and learned and condense it down and, and write it a, a nice valuable piece and then sort of use that as your 
marketing materials in a way to, to get these projects. Like you don't have to talk to you and, and interview you to learn that, that you have contacts. You just read your archives and, and it's pretty clear. Um, how have you, like, I guess, like, have you always been a writer? How have you sort of used writing to, to jumpstart your career in a lot of ways and, and sort of found it to be a wedge into a lot of these different projects? No, I never saw myself being a writer. Like there was no point in my life when I said like, oh, I want to be like a writer. It just kind of happened naturally. And to your point, I think it was the best way for me to be able to translate, you know, the context and culture that I saw every day, you know, to give clarity to what that looked like in the music scene. I would find this song on SoundCloud. I would bring it to an editor and be like, hey, this artist is amazing. and I want to feature them. That's not only saying go listen to this song. It's also providing context on who is this artist? Where are they from? Why is this particular release important in their demographic? How does it slot into the wider collective and ecosystem? And through that, I feel like we're able to translate culture in a really meaningful way. You know, and I really appreciated that comment on being well-spoken because it's something I pride myself on a lot. And I say that the vast majority of that is because of writing. You know, when you're forced to put your ideas down onto paper, you have to kind of pick away all of the extra stuff. And what you end up seeing with a lot of writing is that you can have an idea about a topic, but being able to clearly articulate that to someone is the best way that they're going to learn. And so when I was writing for something like DeFi, DeFi is extremely complicated. You have lending, DEXs, derivatives, you know, options, whatever you want to call it. And for many people, they don't really know what that is under the hood. And so for me, I found a lot of value to basically just saying like, hey, what is the most basic primitive that you need to learn here? Like, what is the core inkling or two that you can walk away with this from? And to your point about being a core asset for my sort of offering to projects, every single project in the world needs help with their narrative. You know, they need help articulating what they're doing. And if I could be someone that could come to the table and help strip down, you know, months of conversation into a really easy to digest, like one or two paragraphs, I think that's something that's going to add a lot of value to any community that exists. Yeah, totally. And I, I can sort of sense that, like, like you mentioned, and I said earlier, like you're speaking, like, it's almost like you're speaking the way you would expect to, to read someone. Like, it's just clear sentences and things like that. And I do think having written quite a bit myself that, you know, it does sort of sharpen the way that you think, um, just having to put it on paper and like, write cleanly. And, you know, over time, I think you do a little bit less and less editing, and it comes out a little bit more and more clearly. Um, so I think, you know, for anyone who doesn't really spend any time writing one thing that i've sort of realized and appreciated myself is like you don't need to be a writer like you said like a career writer you know that's not for everyone but just writing for even like an hour a week is probably not going to be a waste of your time like it's probably going to be worthwhile at least in my opinion um so it, it seems you've certainly done well more than that over the years and it certainly paid off for you um transitioning a little bit to what you're focused on mostly these days which is you know music and music nfts um, and, and all the various players, I saw like the landscape you created of the space. It's like, you, you wouldn't believe how many companies are, or, you know, organizations are working on music NFTs or crypto times music in, in some way or another. Uh, there's like probably 75, comp 75, you know, whether it's a company or DAO, whatever on that list. Um, you've been involved with a bunch of them from the early days, as we mentioned, one of them was Audius. There might be others that you want to call out, but I'm curious to sort of take one of these examples from when you first started to see this space emerge and talk about like how you got involved early, you know, what you were doing to help the project get off the ground and just how you've seen it evolve over the last, you know, two years, whatever it's been. Absolutely. So I'll take a second here to just sort of translate what I believe to be the quote unquote history of music in web three, because I think it's important for people listening to recognize while I may be extremely bullish on music NFTs today, it's because it's the culmination of many, many years of efforts and trials and tribulations. And so music and crypto has been around since at least 2017. You know, some of the first ones that popped up onto my radar were things like Ujo, um, Tune. You know, there was a couple other projects that were experimenting here, but never really got a foothold. 
And it wasn't until, you know, I started working closely with acts like RAC, who were sort of at the intersection of, you know, culture and crypto. They were very tech savvy. They had been doing DeFi, but they wanted to experiment with music, you know, that I started to see this turn into something very meaningful. And so I was working with creators every day and basically just helping to answer the question of what does an artist brand look like in Web3? You know, that took the form of social tokens broadly, and there was no tokenized music component. And then I saw that Audius was beginning to do some work on their token. And that's where I got really excited. This was about a year and a half ago at this point. So I'd say like early to late 2019, you know, at that point in time, I had been lucky enough to work with a couple of projects on their token launches, you know, um, Gitcoin and Super Air kind of being some of the ones that I'd call out here. I'd been building the Friends with Benefits DAO. And so I kind of had a proven track record of being able to do token launches. And when uh, I met with the founder of Audius, Roniel, you know, we immediately hit it off. We were both in a DAO called Metacartel Ventures together. And so there was some shared trust at that time. And he basically expressed to me like, hey, I think it's time for us to start exploring our path to decentralization. You know, they had built this really killer app that had millions of monthly users on it. You could sign in with an email and a password and stream music. And they wanted to start exploring this idea of community ownership. And so for me, when I got involved, it started out similar to how it is with most projects. You know, it was kind of like, okay, we have one mission here. It's getting the token out into the world. It's mapping out what this airdrop looks like and it's communicating why this token is necessary to a broader audience. But as we got deeper into the weeds, I got really excited about being heavily involved with Audius because it just touched to something that I was so passionate about. And so that role emerged from it just being sort of a token launch, you know, consultant to me being more or less, you know, in the trenches with the team every day in the Slack, talking through crypto strategy. So things like how do NFTs play into the profile pages? How do tier systems play in for token holders? What do rewards look like? And, um, you know, I want to go deeper into sort of like the current chapter of music NFTs, but just to round out the point on Audius itself, you know, it was really exciting for me to go from being a consultant to being like really in the weeds because I hadn't done that as much in my career. You know, I hadn't been on team calls every week and I hadn't seen leadership of larger organizations. And for Audius in particular, it was really valuable for me to be able to learn from such a talented team through a lens that I was so passionate about. And I think these days when I tell people, you know, why I'm so excited about Audius as a project, you know, there's a core foundation being built there that's Web3 native. And even if someone like Spotify or Title tries to come into crypto and add NFT counterpoint, you know, a project like Audius has been thinking about this tech stack for so long that I believe there's such a superior advantage there for the way that music finally integrates its way into Web3. Right. And so you mentioned, you know, you want to talk more about what's going on now in this current chapter. How do you sort of like differentiate what you're seeing now versus, you know, getting off the ground with Audius and some of those earlier projects that you worked with? For those who have been following the NFT wave, you'll vividly remember uh, Nifty Gateway coming to the table and every artist you could ever think of dropping NFTs on Nifty Gateway. The reason I want to highlight this is because while this may have seemed like the start for the music NFT movement, quote unquote, it was very different than what you'd expect. You know, a lot of the times these were 15 second audiovisual loops where an artist was involved from a brand perspective, but the music was not the centerpiece of that asset. You're basically buying a tokenized representation of that brand, but there was no underlying audio being put front and center. It was often just like a compliment to some like cool little animated image. What I see with the music NFT movement today is this transition to actually collecting audio itself. And so you're collecting full songs. Sure, it may have a visual component to it, but at its source, you're collecting a song. Some of the projects that I'll call out that have been doing a lot of great work on this regard, Catalog, which is the first platform I started really collecting music NFTs on. You know, this is a one of one marketplace where an artist tokenizes an extremely rare edition of their work. Sound XYZ, which has been a great platform collecting editions and one that I'm extremely active in collecting today. And then things like Royal and Decent, which are poking around with ownership NFTs, where you're not only collecting a song itself, but it also comes with direct royalties and ownership of that record. And so more broadly, I would say the current trend now is stepping away from 
just an artist tokenizing their brand, more specifically figuring out how to put music on chain and allowing artists to have different ways and platforms to go about, you know, exploring that question. Right. So I'm familiar with Audius. I uh, had Ronnie on the podcast pretty early, which I had bought the tokens at that point, but nonetheless, uh, had Blau on as well. He's working on Royal, uh, which I'm really excited about. They're doing something different over there. As you know, obviously you're intimately familiar, probably helped design the whole thing, but uh, they're doing actual like sort of ownership in the tracks. Whereas catalog, I understand is just like a one of one and sound.xyz is more of the additions. Can you explain sort of those two platforms and and how they differ from each other, like why it's worthwhile for you to be on both and actively collecting on both sort of the trade-offs of the one-on-ones versus the additions, things like that? Yeah, absolutely. So at its core, they're both collectible tokenized audio files. What this means is that you are collecting essentially a digital vinyl. You know, as you just articulated, there's no ownership with it. You're not getting master royalties in it, but there is inherent scarcity to it. And so I think this is really important because with music NFTs, the most common question I get is what actually makes these things valuable? You know, we start talking about ownership because I think it's very easy to understand. Okay, if I have an asset that has a direct cash flow on something that's producing value, that tangibly has value itself. But I think the new paradigm that we're challenging with platforms like Catalog and Sound is that a collectible version of music does have value. You know, in the same way that people go and buy vinyl records that they experience in their room and have a really intimate connection with, you know, I see music NFTs as kind of the next parallel here. And the reason that's important is because we're now creating a secondary market for memories, essentially. You know, if I have an emotional relationship with a song, I can go and collect a version of that. And if someone else later down, long, down the line also has an emotional connection with it, they might be able to buy it of me for a, a higher price. But to kind of really get down into the nuance there, you know, catalog is a one of one music NFT marketplace. Those are the most rare exclusive versions of a song that you're ever going to get. You know, while it's not mandatory for an artist to only tokenize it on catalog, what we see now is that if an artist presses a record on catalog as a music NFT, they typically won't release that anywhere else. You know, that will be the rarest version of that song. And to give a very direct comparison to it, um, there's a Wu-Tang album that there's only one of them in existence. And you can basically think of catalog as a marketplace that allows for there to be a Wu-Tang one of one for every single song that ever exists. Now, this is very different from sound, which is more of an additions marketplace. And while they both kind of have this underlying primitive of collectible music NFTs, sound is focused more on offering a larger quantity of additions to allow there to be a broader secondary market to emerge. And so with sound, you'll typically see a drop, quote unquote, with the listening party. You'll play a track, and at the end of playing that track, you can collect a version of it. This is anywhere from 25 editions all the way up to 1,000 editions that we saw this week with Snoop Dogg. And the difference there is that you're still collecting a tokenized version of audio, but it's starting at a lower price point. And I think the reason that this is so important, because now we're at with music NFTs, if we come up to the current state of it, is we need more secondary market activity around collecting these things. You know, it's all good and well for me to go to catalog and buy one of one for my favorite artist. But the reality is that secondary market is going to be much smaller than someone being able to come and buy an edition of a song they love for, let's call it $100. And so I'm really excited about this intersection of getting more people into the market by allowing there to be more supply from artists that are involved in the movement. And I think platforms like Sound are doing a fantastic job of doing that. So how do you see the, the secondary market that you see, you know, you, you said like there's sort of uh, a need for it that can be projected. It's not really there yet, but it, it obviously should be. How do you see that come to fruition or, or sort of question mark around that? Basically just exploring rarity games. You know, I think what we saw a lot with the whole PFP wave. So things like CryptoPunks, Bored Apes, clones, whatever you want to call it. You know, people really love this idea of collecting rare items. Right now with music NFTs, we're basically collecting the same thing across the board. You know, for the Snoop Dogg drop, there was a thousand music NFTs. They're all the same, you know, outside of there being a different number edition to show whether or not you were higher on the leaderboard or lower. But at its core, those were all the same assets. 
I think that this is a great way to sort of start that conversation around what a secondary market looks like. But for there to be meaningful value around these assets, I think we need to figure out what is the equivalent to a PFP project with music. And I think this is important to ask because I don't think that it's actually putting, you know, an avatar, stamping that onto a music, a song, and then having it be like 10,000 different, you know, animated dogs or cats or whatever it is. You know, we need to challenge what is the visual counterpoint to an audio file? You know, in my mind, I start thinking about music videos. I start thinking about different tiers of animation. And I don't think there's an exact playbook for it yet, but um, I'm personally working really closely with a number of artists that are asking this question. And I think we have some cool stuff in the pipeline that people are really going to like. Sounds interesting. Yeah, I don't want you to have to sort of leak stuff, but looking forward to seeing what it is. Uh, I think a relevant question here, I'd read in one of your your writings uh, on Mirror, I believe it was, uh, you talked about how the audio movement, you know, it's driven by scarcity, fandom and access, you said. So those are like sort of the three drivers that you chose. And they're not totally surprising, I guess, but they did strike me as being sort of, you know, you, I'm sure you didn't select those at random. I'm sure you thought long and hard about it. And scarcity sort of makes sense. And fandom and access, like they're, those are known sort of tenets of, of crypto at large. But I'm curious, like why you, you selected sort of those three key drivers amongst, you know, plenty of others that I'm sure you could have considered. Absolutely. So for those that were around during the SoundCloud era in 2013, there's a very popular site called Hype Machine. This basically was a ranking system where people were having a competition about what the most popular track was on any given week. If I was someone that was early to that number one record on Hype Machine, there was no way for me to ascertain my contribution to that outside of me socially saying, oh, I found that track a week ago. I reposted it on my SoundCloud page or I liked it. I think the biggest unlock here for music is that we now have a quantifiable asset that represents that song. And due to the fact that it has scarcity, when I go and collect that, it's not only about me showing that I was early to that, but if it does end up performing well on a secondary market, you know, there's a high likelihood that I could sell that asset for more than what I bought it with. I think this is important to distinguish that it's not about you know, the flipping nature of it and being able to make money, but the fact that a tangible representation of that works out of fixed quantity is the only thing that allows that to happen. And so if we start to look into sort of the fandom and access side of things, music has value because of its mimetic culture. You know, people have a relationship with the things they consume. You know, they might have been falling for an artist for a long time or have an identity around it. And historically, if I love an artist, the only thing I could really do is buy a T-shirt or buy a concert ticket. Now that we have music NFTs with fixed quantities, you know, you as a fan can really go above and beyond to show how forward you are by collecting those assets. You know, right now we exist in a state where there's less than a thousand artists tokenizing music. This is in comparison to three million artists on Spotify. And so if you are a fan that's collecting music NFTs, there is an exponentially higher likelihood that you will develop a personal relationship with your per with your favorite artist because of the fact that you are collecting their music NFT. That's not to say that the artist is inclined to have to text you every day or give you a backstage meet and greet. But if you are someone who's passionate about music, such as myself, I've found this to be sort of the next generation of curation, you know, basically articulating my love for music and saying like, hey, I really love this artist. I've collected it. And in the event that I want to have a conversation with them, the fact that I own their music NFT makes that reality a lot more likely. Yeah, it makes sense. And I think like, you know, early on, I was playing around with like BitClout, uh, obviously to date hasn't worked out exceptionally well as, as a website, but the DSO platform is still, or the protocol rather, is still pretty interesting and we'll see how it all turns out. But one of the interesting aspects there was you saw sort of creators joining and then they could do things like, okay, you know, buy my coin and, uh, you know, the top 10 largest holders of my coin get access to this, you know, call that I'm going to do every Friday or something like that. And just that concept of being able to hold someone's coin, or in this case, hold one of their songs or one of their albums or something like that in the form of a music NFT, um, it gets pretty interesting. You can really 
as an artist too, you can really see like who are your most passionate fans who are willing to, you know, put the money behind it or, or even people who invested early. You don't need to cut it by amount. You could cut it by like, okay, who are my first a hundred token buyers um, and sort of cut it that way. Uh, I just think it opens up a lot of interesting possibilities and obviously you agree and, and probably have a much deeper sort of perspective on all of that. But um, I think just to make this point a little bit more tangible for people and make it hit home a little bit, it'd be interesting to hear, you know, obviously you can probably get your foot in the door with tons of different artists just because of sort of the, the niche you've carved yourself within the space. But even without that, like how has buying a music NFT here and there actually led to like, you know, what's an example of a relationship you've been able to build with an artist or two as a result of sort of this concept that we're talking about here? Yeah, so it's important to recognize that you don't need to buy music NFT to be helpful in an artist journey in Web3. You know, a case study that I highlight here is my really close friend, Daniel Allen. This was someone who's now become a leading name in music NFTs, but was not that, you know, three months ago. When we started talking to each other, um, he basically was completely new to crypto. He was a small independent artist with 100,000 monthly listeners on Spotify, 200 followers on Twitter, and he was excited about this EP he was dropping. But rather than pitching that to a label, which everyone's been through many times in the music industry, and it's not a new conversation, you know, we had an open discussion about what it looks like for him to start carving out a brand in Web3. You know, he was really new at the time, but we basically started experimenting with releasing records on catalog. And after he had gotten a couple of records out there, we started experimenting with the crowdfund for a project called Overstimulated. This was a really pivotal moment in music NFTs. And the reason I want to highlight this is that there was no need for me to purchase his music NFTs to have a conversation about his best way to get into the space. You know, we started working together every single day talking about what does this crowdfund look like? How do we tokenize each of the records coming off of the EP? And very similar to the work that I was doing in 2017 with projects around token launches, you can think of that process on a much more minimal scale. You know, I was working with this artist and basically saying like, hey, what does your creator economy look like? Let's scope down, you know, this billion dollar economy in the case of something like Audius to instead just releasing one EP. And so for people that are out there listening, if you have an artist that you really love and you see that they're starting to tweet about NFTs, you know, drop them a note and just ask to be a sounding board because a lot of the time these artists don't have a good compass or a good guide to help them. And if you are someone that can show that you're just articulate in how the space is moving, even if you're not actively collecting it every single day, you know, there's a really high likelihood that you can start to build a personal relationship with them. Yeah, it's a, it's a common thread that I've heard from you. I'm glad you sort of made that point. I've heard it, you know, you've, you've talked about it on other podcasts, you've written about it, basically the fact that like, you don't need to have some big checkbook or, or some, you know, well-funded crypto wallet to go in and get involved in the space. You just need to participate. And obviously you're a, you know, you yourself are a great example of that, having done it since day one. Um, getting off, you know, we'll, we'll come back to the music NFTs and, and dig a little bit deeper. But to that point, I'm curious, like, you know, it's not actually easy to be involved or maybe you feel differently, but from my perspective, it's not that easy to like sort of be involved in a bunch of different things all at the same time. It sort of dilutes your focus and it's just, it's a real challenge, I think, to like allocate time to several different priorities all at once. Um, how have, you know, I, I don't know if you started from day one in like 2018 working on several things at a time, but I'm curious if you have any sort of philosophical thoughts on like, not even philosophical, but like just practical thoughts on sort of time management and, and how you can go and, you know, you start connecting with this artist and that artist and all of a sudden, you, you know, you're talking with 12 artists and five different companies and three different DAOs and you're involved in all of them trying to balance your time. What has been some of your learnings from just basically becoming the expert at that over the last few years? Yeah, I'd say broadly, my intention is to spend time on whatever is most interesting at any given point. 
And so this is always going to be changing. There's never going to be one thing that's always the most interesting forever, but being able to be highly nimble to involve yourself in that conversation is extremely important. And so from an advice standpoint, I would say if you are new to Web3 today, pick a niche that you're really excited about outside of Web3 and find the way in which Web3 is touching that. That doesn't mean that you need to go and start your own project tomorrow, but if you start to look under the hood through a lens that you're passionate about, there's typically something there for you. And so to your point, I don't think it makes sense for you to start committing to five to 10 different projects out of the gate. But if you have a thesis, you know, in the case for me, it was music of like, this is the thing that I'm really excited about. Where does this touch web three? Once you start asking yourself that question, you sort of see this like landscape of different doors being open. You know, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, I have a map out there for music NFTs. I've done one for DAOs. I've done one for NFTs. You know, these things are going to continually exist. And I think your role as someone that's new to the ecosystem is just being able to have a lay of the land. You know, and having a lay of the land doesn't mean that you need to work with every single project that's on that map. But as you start to contribute to the ones that you're most excited about, a lot of the value add that I've brought to the table, and I think that you can too, is really just saying, hey, here's what's happening outside of the core team's like initial purview. You know, for a lot of these core team members, they're so heads down on building what they are that it's difficult for them to stay involved with the conversation happening more broadly in the community. And so I'd say the role that I've played is really, you know, just to double down on it, is just context, you know, being able to say, this token is going up because they did this or saying these people are working together for X, Y, and Z reasons. You don't have to be in their Slack channel to see those things happening. You just need to be active and present. And I think for someone that's looking to start contributing to projects, you know, things like writing are a great example of how to be able to articulate that. But, you know, more broadly, I would say finding two or three projects that you're really passionate about, using that as sort of your core touch point, and then keeping an open lens and an open mind to what's happening outside of it is the way I'd recommend pairing those together. How do you go about project discovery yourself? You know, obviously you're just like so plugged in now that I'm sure things come to you, but back in the early days, like sort of discovering projects, is it just, you know, staying active on Twitter and, and reading what's going on there, participating in discords, following certain people's blogs? How do you think about sort of getting your, your finger on the pulse of the space for, for whatever it might be that the niche that you're interested in is? There's top of funnel. So I think all those things are extremely valuable, you know, joining discords, being on Twitter and reading blogs, you know, finding one or two outlets that you're following every single day, I think is very, very important. I would say more specifically, the key unlock here is having a small pocket of trusted individuals that you guys are talking about where the market is moving every single day. And so it's one thing to be actively on public Twitter, you know, researching all the things that people are posting about. It's another thing to have a chat group of five to 10 people who are in this thing every single day. And for me in 2017, it wasn't until I got into some of these smaller telegram groups of 10 to 20 people that I started to really see, you know, where were things going? And the reason for that is that it wasn't only my internal assumption that something was cool. It was actually presenting that to a group and being like, oh, that project's super cool. That project, not so much. I like this. I don't like that. And so if you are someone that's trying to find new products to work through, instead of trying to just go directly to the project itself, instead find a community of people that are actively involved with that project. You know, get into a group with them where they're having ongoing discussions and really narrow down the scope of how many people you're talking to, because it's really easy to get lost in a server on Discord with 10,000 members. What's a lot harder is finding a pocket of five people that you really trust and being like, yo, I saw this guy follow on Twitter posted this. You know, what are you guys thinking about that? And through that, I think you're going to start to notice that there's a commonality of projects that come up through a lot of the shared channel. And that was kind of my litmus test. It was like, how many people that I know and trust are talking about this as well? And the stronger that sort of network hub became, that's how I decided where to spend my time and energy. Yeah, it's interesting. I should probably look to piece together a, a group or two like that around sort of my key areas of interest. Cause you're right. I think like you, you, you know, you follow Twitter or you join larger discords and it's just, it's, it's difficult to follow. It's not as personal, et cetera, et cetera, but you got a few people who are passionate about something 
in a group and just keep that dialogue going. I think everything sort of surfaces pretty naturally from, from out of there. Um, coming back to music NFTs and everything that's going on today, uh, we've talked about, I, I, I think, you know, at least a little bit, we've talked about sort of what to do if you're just sort of interested in, in consuming and, and getting involved and, um, you know, supporting artists and things like that. But if you actually are the artist, I want to like cover that side of things a little bit. There's obviously a lot of artists out there. A lot of people making music, passionate about it, like you are. Um, what are sort of like your your first sort of keys to them to getting involved? Like, you know, maybe they're not ready to jump fully into Web3 yet. Like they're still trying to do their thing on Spotify and find a live gig and things like that. But they want to start poking around and experimenting. What do you have to say to people like that? It's a great question. And I'll start by saying, I think one of the biggest problems with music NFTs today is that it's very gatekept. You know, if I am an artist that's excited and passionate about getting into music NFTs, there's not an easy on-ramp for me to just start dropping today. You know, I'll give a shout out to platforms like Mint Songs here that are exceptional for just being able to go on and mint. But I think for a lot of artists, you know, I talk about how excited I am for something like Catalog or Sound or Royal. And the reality is if I want to get on that platform, it's not as easy as just signing up for it and releasing. You know, there's a curation process there and it takes a lot of time. What I've noticed is that a lot of artists are getting blocked there. And so what I start to think of instead is how do you start to build an audience around your music that's receptive to Web3? You know, this actually isn't you dropping tokenized forms of your music today. It's actually doing things like giving po-ops away at your shows. So giving people free to claim NFTs to show that there's value in them being interested in this side of your artist project. You can start to foster those artist to fan relationships in a really meaningful level before you ever tokenize your work. What I'm noticing now is that there's almost two distinct communities for an artist brand and an artist community. There's sort of the super fans, which are the people that are willing to dive into Web3 and collect music NFTs. And then there's the passive listener. You know, they might find you through a playlist or they might kind of see you on Instagram, but they're not trying to collect everything you do. And so if you're an artist trying to get into music NFTs, I would recommend just getting involved in the conversation, you know, finding some of those pockets that I alluded to, joining the sound Twitter spaces every day and just seeing who's in the mix. But then more practically, as you ramp up to actually tokenizing your music, you know, carve out a pocket of your Discord or carve out an area where your fans who are willing to jump through hoops can go and just find a way to tokenize some of your music. You know, like I said, uh, Mint Songs is a great open platform. I've noticed a lot more artists dropping on Zora before they get onto something like Catalog. And so Catalog is built on top of Zora. But for those who don't know, you can go to Zora and tokenize a form of your music and release it as a one of one today. You don't need anyone's permission to do that. But I think what's really important to emphasize here is that in the music NFT culture, just tokenizing the work itself is one thing, but being present and active in the community so that people actually see that is another thing entirely. Anyone can go and mint something on Zora, but you're not going to get a bid just because you, you minted a music NFT. You're going to get a bid because you've been active in an ongoing conversation. And the more presence you spend in that community, the higher likelihood it is that you're probably going to sell that record. Yeah, it's interesting. I want to explore like sort of the, the contrast between these open platforms and the ones that are a little bit more curated, a little bit harder to get on. It's funny you mentioned Zora being like the open option now. I remember not so long ago, like Zora, I think was, if not like curated or, or gatekept, so to speak, at the very least, it wasn't for everyone immediately. You had to have like a special pass to be able to mint on Zora. And now it's like the open option. And of course, this isn't like a new thing. If you go all the way back to like when Facebook first started, you had to be like, you know, you had to be at Harvard, then you had to be like an Ivy Leaguer, et cetera, et cetera. And now it's got, you know, a third of the world's on Facebook or, or whatever it is. Say what you want about Facebook, but pr pretty successful. Um, so, you know, you've got these platforms now. You mentioned like Royal Catalog, um, maybe even Sound. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how they are, but regardless, there's, there's this collection of platforms that are going for this sort of curated, you know, quote unquote, gatekept approach. 
um, which I'm sure, you know, they're not just doing it for the sake of doing it. They're doing it as part of sort of their, their strategy and, and they're trying to become successful as platforms. Uh, but then you've got the others, like I think you mentioned Mint Songs, uh, that's totally open and Zora now is totally open. Um, how do you like sort of think about these different approaches and, you know, your advisors, you're, you're an advisor across several of these projects that are taking different approaches, open versus curated. What do you think like the trade-offs are there? And, you know, what's, you know, I, I don't think crypto at the end of the day is trying to be like a gate kept place. And I think most people building within it are trying to be open, but like I said, there is value to that sort of curated start. Curious how you think about the trade-offs there. Yeah, it's a really, really great point. I'm excited that we're sticking on it. Curation is extremely valuable. And the reason for that is that as something becomes more curated, the quality of the work should increase in parallel. You know, open platforms are extremely valuable because anyone can get into it. What we often see is that the quality of work diminishes because it's so open and accessible. And so there's almost this middle ground that I think everyone's trying to get to. And to your point, I don't think any of these music NFT platforms are trying to be gatekept forever. In fact, I know this because I talk to the founders every day and they're actively thinking through how do we better you know, open source this and allow there to be more of like a community creation system in place. But yeah, there really is a trade-off there. You know, I think the reason that something like Sound is doing so well and selling out every single day is because the team's being extremely selective about who they're letting onto that platform. You know, if you just open the floodgates and let anyone go on Mint, you know, things are going to go wrong. Things aren't going to perform well. Um, you're going to have bad actors on the platform. And so it's really sort of a, a gradual growth process in the same way that we hear this term progressive decentralization for DeFi projects and DAOs. You know, music NFTs are going through that very much right now, too. You know, I think in three months, we'll look back and we'll see a lot better curation onboarding systems for these platforms. But as it exists today, you know, music NFTs are so early that we need to prove that there is a, a meaningful impact being made here amongst the artist community. And the best way to do that is for it to be curated out of the gate. But I think it's really important to emphasize that we need other options, too, because the only curated platforms winning is actually a detriment to all the people that want to get into the space. You know, I have artists hitting me up every single day being like, yo, I'm ready. And these aren't just like, artists that just got started yesterday. These are artists with a million monthly listeners on Spotify, 100,000 followers on Instagram that have done well for themselves. But unfortunately, right now, the curatorial pace of the top music NFT platforms is not keeping up with the artist demand. And so right now, there's a little bit of an open design space to really capture the you know, energy and attention of those artists that want to dive in, but might not quite be at the level yet where they're ready to start dropping on some of those more curated solutions. So further to that point, you know, you brought up earlier, like how you decide what projects to get involved in. I, you know, I don't want to mis, mis paraphrase, but I think it was basically just like what's sort of most interesting seems to have the most momentum right now, just staying on the bleeding edge of things. But when it comes down to like an individual, all these artists are reaching out to you. Some of them have millions of followers on Spotify, et cetera, et cetera. I'm, I'm sure you're not just like sort of being like, oh, you have X amount of followers on, on Twitter or Y listeners on Spotify, like you get a, you know, I want to work with you, but I don't want to work with you because you're not at the threshold. I'm sure it's not so quantitative and it's more of like a feel based on a, a bunch of different criteria, sort of whether they're explicit or, or implicit, sort of conscious or subconscious. But I'm curious how you think like when, when you get these, you know, I'm sure your, your inbox is flooded these days with people like this. And I'm curious how you think about like who you want to work with and, and who you, you know, either not necessarily that you don't want to work with them, but just not yet necessarily. Yeah. So to your point, I think that there is a really valuable, you know, analysis point of how much has someone succeeded in web two, you know, how many monthly listeners they have or how many followers they have on Instagram. But it's important to recognize that the most driving factor for why I work with artists in web three is what is their likelihood to succeed with web three being a core tenant of their brand. You know, I'm far more excited about the act that is tokenizing every single one of their singles and making it a centerpiece of their project than I am about getting someone who has 
10 million monthly listeners in the door. I don't think these two things are mutually exclusive, but my litmus test is basically like, how much do you care about this new space? You know, is this something that you're going to actually allocate time and energy to, or is this just another way to show that you're relevant in the conversation? I would say that paired with my own personal interest, you know, as I alluded to earlier, I've been actively curating music for close to 10 years at this point. So I've seen the history of a lot of these artists, you know, I've seen the impact they've made in their local communities. I see the way that they're integrated into their artist networks. And I think a lot of what I look for is not only how well is this music going to perform, but how well are you connected to be able to translate this conversation and this movement to your peers? If it's someone that doesn't have a huge following on Spotify, but I know that they're a producer for some of the biggest artists in the world, you know, they have the ear of some of the biggest managers in the world. You know, that's a really valuable conversation for me to have because it's not only about getting their music up on chain, it's also about the way in which they're translating what's happening to the other most important people in the world. And so if to really boil that down, I would say first and foremost, how likely are you to succeed in Web3 and make that a core part of your brand? And then how strong is your network to be able to translate the music NFT movement to your peers? Yeah, I think that's that's a great sort of set of principles to go off of. And uh, yeah, I mean, like I think the way that you identify projects, obviously people are going to be listening and interested in reaching out to you. But even for anyone who's just thinking about who to work with, I think that's sort of like a useful useful framework to think about. Um, you know, I, I want to like get your, we've talked about a lot about like what happened with music and, and crypto and what's going on now with music and NFTs. I want to get your projection on the future a little bit. Obviously you've got some sort of inside information, so feel free to sort of not share whatever you don't want to share, but to the extent that you can, I'd like to hear like the next three, five, five plus years uh, down the line, like, where are we? How has music changed? How has crypto helped to make that happen? And then, you know, if you will, even more broadly, you've said like, we might be in the MySpace era of crypto. Um, how do you see crypto as a whole evolving over the next several years? Obviously, music is your focus right now, but you've been a part of this thing for a while and, you know, are qualified to speak on like where things might be going. Yeah, I absolutely love this question. I believe in three to five years, every brand and creator will have a tokenized representation of themselves. So a lot of the work that I do with artists today is basically getting to a point where they can have a token that represents their brand. You know, this is not something that you can just launch overnight. And I think a lot of the early work with social tokens have proven that we need better models for this. But to quantify it, I see music NFTs as the building block for larger artist economies. You know, starting to create an on-chain treasury of assets where you're selling NFTs and basically using that to fund the community treasury that's governed by an artist token. You know, this is sort of the one to two year time horizon of where I think these things are going. You know, to give a tactical example of that, I've been working really closely with an artist project called Roki. This is a new Web3 native act. And for their EP, instead of putting it on Spotify, we're releasing the music as music NFTs. And so every single will basically have 500 music NFTs. There's going to be different rarities and editions of that. And there'll be six, you know, six singles in the entire season. But what I want to highlight here is that you don't need to be in a label deal to start seeing success in Web3. You know, in fact, the contrary is actually true. If you're going out of your way to release music NFTs and prioritizing that, you're going to form such a solid foundation for an artist token. And my thesis here is that artist tokens are going to outperform any label advance over a three to five year horizon. You know, I don't think that this is clear yet because no one's done it. But, you know, to my earlier point about us needing more secondary markets around music NFTs, I think this is how we get there. And to your point about this being the MySpace era of crypto, Right now, buying music NFTs is hard. You know, you need to have a MetaMask wallet. The cheapest price point is typically 0.1 ETH. But if we zoom out over three to five years, I think anyone will be able to collect a tokenized representation of music in one click for $5 or less. You know, when I go and stream a track on Spotify, instead of me hitting the like button, you know, maybe there's a collect button. And that canvas art you see in the background is not only something that's visually appealing, but it allows you to collect it as an asset and use it as a social graph. 
And so more broadly, I think what we're seeing now is that our social experimentation online is becoming tokenized. You know, whether this is NFTs or social tokens, you know, the assets that we hold are really a portrayal of our own personal brand. And so I think what's going to happen with crypto more broadly, Web3, is as I'm contributing value to any brand or project, we'll use music as a vertical here. If I'm streaming a track or if I'm liking a song, you know, there's going to be ways for me to earn ownership in that project itself. And so a lot of the work that I do today is basically making it really easy for someone to get involved and making it easy for someone to get started with owning a part of the project that they love. Then this is how we get to a point where you are spending your time working for the brands that you love instead of working on something that pays the bills and then on the weekend spending time on the things that you actually like to spend time on. Yeah, it's, it's a bright future for sure. And something that I've looked forward to for a while, I think with personal tokens or artist tokens, creator coins, whatever you want to call them. Uh, I think it's a really exciting possibility. And we've seen it, you know, there's been like roll and rally and Bitcoin, I mean, uh, not Bitcoin, uh, uh, what's it called? BitClout, like I mentioned earlier, but um, it's still very early, it seems. And, and maybe music will be the thing that sort of gets it to launch a little bit and, and makes it all happen. Uh, I'm curious your perspective on like how these things have value. You know, there's a lot of people still, let alone, you know, over the last several years, going back to all the way, if you go to 2012, like Bitcoin was a joke in a lot of people's mind now. A lot of people see it as like digital gold, at least, um, you know, Ethereum people question, like, how does that actually have value? Uh, it's no longer like you're just looking at cash flows or whatever. Like there's a whole different way to think about value. I think, uh, that a lot of people within the space subscribe to, um, you know, you've said like NFT value drives from strength of community. I thought it was a really nice, concise way to put it, um, with creator coins, you know, the idea is, is similar, like as the community grows the, you know, that supports that creator. Um, theoretically, the value should go up and the people who sort of supported early should benefit monetarily from that. But I'm curious, like, you know, if one thing I was thinking about, for example, is, you know, I go make a, a personal token on, on roll or, or BitCloud, whatever it is, a creator coin on BitCloud, you know, yes, like as I become more successful and have a growing community of, of supporters, like, the, the coin, you know, it's, it's reasonable to think that the coin or the token will go up. Um, but like, what if, you know, what if there's no sort of go-to hub for all of these personal tokens? Like, what if I'm on rally and roll, like which one gets the value? I'm curious, like if you've sort of addressed some of these, you know, possible like concerns about like, not concerns, but like a critique of like, oh, it's not that simple. Like this personal tokens thing isn't going to work. Like, how do you think of how those things are going to accrue value in the future? I think the difference between the early generation and social tokens to the artist tokens that I'm talking about is there will be an underlying community treasury that has on-chain value in it. So the value of an artist token should not only be the memetic value of what I think this brand is worth, it should also be you know, backed by ETH and USDC and other project tokens and NFTs. And in the same way that we value DAO tokens today based on their underlying treasuries, so something like a Uniswap or a Compound, you know, artist tokens are going to be no different. You know, to really highlight why I'm so passionate about music NFTs is this is the first time I've seen creative brands be able to have on-chain cash flows. You know, it's not only about the primary sale of an NFT, but those secondary sales consistently generating revenue for a treasury. You know, that's the system that I think gives this thing a core underlying foundation. More broadly, I think that people just want to make friends online. And the reality is, as we start to scale up, you know, these digital communities, the assets you hold are going to be a strong representation of how intimate you want to be in a community. And so if you hold an artist token, or if you hold their music NFTs, you're going to get higher up that ladder and be able to talk to other people that are also, you know, all in quote unquote on this specific project. 
And I think that social dynamic of going from, you know, owning exposure to an artist and then actually using that as your leverage point to have relationships in that community, there's something really valuable there. And so I'll be the first to say, I do not have this figured out. I don't think anyone has it figured out, but to extremely oversimplify it, I think an artist sells music NFTs. They put a portion of those proceeds into a community treasury. Over time, they create an artist token. They airdrop those to people who have collected those music NFTs. And I think that's the start to a much wider experiment around how these artist tokens create value. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I like that answer. Uh, it's, it's, it certainly sounds good. We'll see how it plays out. But uh, I, I hope it does work because it would just be a really interesting thing. Like you said, people could, you know, you don't have to go do your nine to five anymore. You just sort of like go on the internet and get involved with what you want to get involved in and help the people you want to help. And, you know, maybe there's enough money in, in doing that, just sort of naturally accruing that you can just sort of, you know, not have to work to live, like you said earlier, I think, and, and just be able to do what you want to do all day, um, which sounds like a pretty good way to be. Uh, I, I know we're coming up on time here. Uh, I'm trying to think of where I want to go with the last question. Maybe we'll end on a positive note. Um, I, I read that you, you know, you recently helped pay off your parents' mortgage and your students' loan, your student loans, excuse me, with, uh, you know, some of the money you've made in crypto over the last several years. Uh, and obviously, that's a, a really cool thing to do. But I'm curious, like, you know, you're we're, we're about the same age actually, and you know, I, I can imagine what it's like to sort of go from you know, a college kid to having a, a, you know, a decent chunk of money after, you know, a matter of five years or whatever it is. I'm curious your how like your, your relationship with sort of money has changed uh, after being involved with crypto for all these years. Um, you know, there's the old thing like money doesn't buy happiness. Uh, I personally kind of think there's like a threshold, like it does buy, like having a certain amount does actually help a lot. And then, you know, beyond that, maybe it's not actually incrementally useful um, or, or at, the, at the very least, like maybe a minimum amount. But I'm curious just like what it's been like to, to go through the ride over the last several years and what that moment was like being able to help your parents out and, and you know, become a little bit or gain a little bit more financial freedom yourself um, and where you are today and sort of where you're going in the future. Yeah, it's a really great question. I would say broadly, it's given me confidence that the things I believe in actually are valuable. You know, being able to see something come to fruition in a way that you thought it would is such an empowering experience that now when I operate, I'm really able to operate from a point of conviction and be confident that the ideas I have actually have value. And I think money is just sort of a, you know, a proving factor of that in many ways, shapes and form. That's not to say it's the same across the board, but I think the fact that there is a thesis that you have that's able to generate real monetary value, it really breaks the mold of, you know, how do you make money? Like, am I getting paid in a salary? What does this look like? And, you know, being able to do those things like paying off my parents' mortgage, paying off student loans, you know, the amount of money you have, I don't think matters, you know, to your point, I think beyond a certain point, it doesn't change how you operate, but being able to produce, you know, income and revenue and be able to do well for yourself based on the fact that you have an idea that you're passionate about is extremely, extremely gratifying. And so, you know, these days I live here in LA, you know, as a lot of my friends know, I'm really into fashion. Um, I'm really into collecting NFTs. And obviously I wouldn't be able to do that without having a nice monetary base there. But what I've found is that my closest friendships have nothing to do with the amount of money that they have. You know, oftentimes the smartest people in the world do happen to have a lot of money themselves. But I would say as a grounding principle, you know, I spend my time with people who inspire me and whether or not they've done well for themselves financially, you know, it's just exciting to be in creative spaces. And so I think being able to live in a city like Los Angeles, that's pretty expensive, but spend my time with creatives, it's allowed me to have a really strong base. Now I'm going to crypto conferences around the world and traveling. And I would say to your point, money doesn't buy happiness, but money does buy experiences. And I believe that experiences are what lead directly to happiness. Yeah, it's an awesome perspective. And, uh, 
I know we're coming up on time here, but I saw you tweeted the other day, everything works out exactly as it should. I love to see that. Uh, I sort of have a similar thing that I try to remind myself everything happens for a reason. And even if it doesn't, even if everything doesn't work out exactly as it should, I think it's at least beneficial to, uh, to sort of keep that in mind. And, and if you can try to believe it a little bit, and then the things you, you start looking at things like they're working out sort of on your behalf. And, and I can imagine the conviction you've gained seeing some of these things work out as you sort of expected they would over the last several years. So it's really cool. And uh, yeah, Cooper, I appreciate you coming on today. It's been an awesome conversation. Went by super quickly, wish we had another hour, but nonetheless, uh, happy to wrap it up for today. Where can people go and, uh, you know, continue to follow your journey and follow along everything you're doing in the years to come? Thank you, man. Yeah, it was an honor to be on it. I think we got into a lot of incredible stuff and this podcast is an amazing resource. So quickly, before I plug myself, I just want to plug you. You know, the work you do is fantastic. The guests you have on here are truly top notch. So I'm honored to be one of them. Um, the best place to stay up with me would be on Twitter at Koopa Troopa. I'm also pretty active on Instagram these days at Koopa Troopa as well. And for those of you who are involved in the music NFT movement, check out that uh, Sound XYZ bot as I think you'll see me sweeping some floors very soon. 